0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 111, Holy Palindrome. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on, no foolin', April 1st, 2023 in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism, or at least as little as possible. For those of you listening to this before April 11th, 2023, I'll be doing a meetup in Washington, D.C. that evening, time and place to be announced on Twitter, the Facebook page, and the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, probably in a blog post. Send me an email or direct message by some means if you think you can make it so I can plan accordingly. So my muse wandered off and wondered about the first European sighting or settlement of cities that today host National Football League teams. By the mid-1630s, by my reckoning, Europeans had touched or seen from offshore at least nine places within today's United States that have NFL franchises in 2023, In 1513, Ponce de Leon sailed into Biscayne Bay off Miami. Counting sightings from ships, Miami's the first NFL city to have been visited by Europeans. Berrazzano, of course, sailed into New York Harbor in 1524, so if we can consider the Giants and Jets to be New York teams, perhaps we can credit that as the second stop. There is, of course, no evidence that Verrazzano or any of his men made it anywhere near the Meadowlands, so maybe not. That would not happen decisively until the Dutch arrived in the region after Henry Hudson's voyage of 1609. Since Cabeza de Vaca's raft probably landed on Galveston Island or thereabouts in late 1528, and since he spent six years in the region roaming around with his tribe and then as a long-distance intertribal trader... He almost certainly passed through Houston Metro. And of course, the entire NAR Vice expedition had landed at Tampa Bay, the first example that we know of in which Europeans encamped at the city limits of an NFL city. The 1540s were very busy. Detachments from the Coronado Entrada may have passed through Phoenix Metro. Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo sailed into San Diego Harbor in 1542. Alas, an NFL city no longer. And then on to Los Angeles. In 1543, Luis de Moscoso Alvarado led the remnants of the Soto expedition down the Mississippi River to the Gulf. They must have floated past the site of New Orleans. And since they were on rafts, perhaps they pulled over there to spend the night. Earlier, the Soto expedition may have passed within the city limits of Charlotte, North Carolina, and Atlanta. But his route is so contested, I'm reluctant to credit Soto with the Panthers or the Falcons. Of course, the Huguenots built Fort Caroline at today's Jacksonville in 1564, the first legitimate European settlement at an NFL city. Sir Francis Drake almost certainly missed the Golden Gate in 1579. No need to repeat that sorry story of historical fraud. And while there's a very small chance he sailed into Puget Sound, I, who am willing to give Drake credit for almost anything, can't bring myself to say he saw Seattle. I know you must be wondering why I'm going on about NFL cities. There's a punchline coming. The year after Jamestown's founding in 1607, John Smith sailed up the Chesapeake into the Potomac River and almost certainly reached metropolitan Washington. Whether any of the Virginia Company explorers reached Baltimore is unclear, at least to me. Also, in the early 1600s, various explorers sighted and mapped Boston, Samuel de Champlain and John Smith, to name just two. But there's no evidence anybody got to Foxborough for some time. It's a sure bet that the pilgrims from New Plymouth ranged through Foxborough at some point in the 1620s if nobody else had done, long before William Blackstone would have passed through it in 1633, or Roger Williams in his trading and missionary trips before his expulsion from the bay in 1636. No doubt others had also done. Even before Europeans definitively reached Foxborough one of Champlain's young embedded translators Étienne Brûlé passed through Buffalo in 1615 Long standing and very attentive listeners will remember that Champlain had dispatched Brûlé to recruit the Susquehannocks to attack Onondaga today's Syracuse from the south while Champlain and the Hurons moved against it from the north As many of you know, Brulé failed to show up on time. That same year, Brulé would sail down the Susquehannock River to the Chesapeake, entering it from the north. He may have reached Baltimore, but that's sheer speculation. Point is, by the early 1630s, Europeans had definitively settled, touched, or seen, in rough chronological order, Miami, Tampa Bay, New Orleans, Jacksonville, Washington, Buffalo, New York, New Jersey, and Boston, Foxboro, and may have passed through or seen Houston, Phoenix, Los Angeles, Charlotte, and Atlanta. The next NFL town to be seen by a European would be Green Bay by another of Champlain's embedded translators, Jean Nicolet, in the summer of 1634. That weird trip is the subject of this episode, however disappointing it may be as a punchline to the opening frolic and detour. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, Europeans and Indian tribes would often trade teenage boys to live in the opposite culture. For example, John Smith and... Powhatan, Powhatan, traded young Thomas Savage and Namantak, a story we explored in some depth about a year ago in the episode Jamestown and the Powhatans, Part Eight: The Emissaries. There were at least two purposes in these trades. The young men would learn the language and culture and could eventually serve as interpreters. And they were also implicitly hostages to secure the peace. Samuel de Champlain, who strived mightily to maintain peaceful relations not only between the French and the nearby tribes, but also among the nearby tribes, after 1610 dispatched quite a few young men to live among the tribes along the St. Lawrence and to the west of New France. These interpreters, known to the French as Truchemont, were essential to Champlain's dream— of a harmonious and integrated society in New France. One of those was Etienne Brule, an ambitious young man who would eventually appall Champlain and the Catholic friars of New France, even while exploring much of the Eastern Great Lakes. In addition to traipsing through Buffalo, Brule was the first European to see the state of Michigan in 1521, and as mentioned, the first to enter the Chesapeake from the north. Why did he appall the good Catholics of New France? Because apparently he was a voracious hound dog, availing himself of the relatively open sexual mores in the tribes in which he embedded family podcast, etc., etc. Another was Jean Nicolet, who would go down in history for having discovered Wisconsin for the French in that summer of 1634. Nicolet would become the stuff of legend in America's Dairyland. There are various statues and plaques devoted to him, and a college, a high school, and a Wisconsin state bank. The second largest in the state, apparently, are named after him. Nicolay has been the object of some measure of Wisconsin state pride, not entirely unlike the affection of Californians of past generations for Sir Francis Drake. Unlike the Drake in California story... Jean Nicolet almost certainly went ashore in Wisconsin, but like the Drake myth, the true story of Nicolet's journey has been horribly botched by historians, at least according to a recent book by Patrick J. Young, professor of history at the Milwaukee School of Engineering, the misunderstood mission of Jean Nicolet, upon which I have much relied. The key elements of the Nicolet story, as it was told for well over a century, are set forth in an article for the Wisconsin Magazine of History Spring 2001 issue by Norman K. Rizyord, I think that's how you pronounce his name, Jean Nicolet's Search for the South Sea. In that telling, which in defense of Professor Rizyord was the conventional wisdom until Professor Young began publishing his revisions less than a decade ago, Champlain dispatched Nicolet to explore the western Great Lakes in the hopes of finding a northwest passage to China. Supposedly, Nicolay packed, among other things, a silk Chinese robe to put on when he encountered Chinese people, or tribes who might know what Chinese people were supposed to look like. Nicolet wore that robe when he encountered the ancestral people of the tribe, commonly referred to as the Winnebago's on the shores of Green Bay. Then, according to some version of that traditional account, Nicolay paddled down the Fox River, which flows into Lake Michigan at Green Bay, perhaps reaching Lake Winnebago or beyond, a wrinkle that Professor Rizyor does not endorse. This story, including the goofy Chinese robe, has been memorialized in paintings and murals and even a commemorative stamp issued by the United States Post Office in 1934 the image of which I will put on the website. Professor Young's far more plausible account, published in 2018, is fascinating enough, so I'm going to use it as the primary source for this episode. It is a short and bracing read, and fans of the podcast from Wisconsin in particular might want to pick it up so they can correct the record the next time Nicolet comes up over beers which probably happens more often than one might think, insofar as we're talking about Wisconsin. The story of Nicolet's journey to Wisconsin has several strands which come together in the summer of 1634. First, Samuel de Champlain, the founder of New France, envisioned a French project in North America entirely different than that of the English or the Spanish. Champlain, as long-standing and attentive listeners know, aspired to a multicultural new France in which Indians and French would live together in peace, trading for the benefit of all. Over the decades, Champlain not only devoted himself to maintaining peace between the French and the tribes along the St. Lawrence, but also among those tribes and their historical enemies at their periphery. When he went to war, it was in a limited way to deter war or impose peace, not to seize territory or destroy Indian tribes. This peculiarly French approach had both intellectual roots, which we've talked about before, and practical ones. Life in France was much better than in England or Spain, and it was difficult to recruit settlers to the wilderness of North America. The French of Champlain's era aspired to trade and religious conversion rather than conquest and extended settlement, and never developed a cash crop like tobacco in Virginia or sugar in the Caribbean that would push it to set up large Indian displacing plantations. Some of the background of this is in our episode introduction to Samuel de Champlain and some other stuff from February 2022, starting at about seven minutes along after the other stuff part. You can find it under episodes on the website or by scrolling back about 50 episodes in your podcast app. As part of this, Champlain assigned boys and young men to live with nearby tribes to learn their language and serve as interpreters to a much greater degree than the English of either Virginia and Massachusetts, the Dutch, or the Spanish. That leads us to the second strand, Jean Nicolet. Nicolet was born in Cherbourg, France, and came to New France in 1619 when he was about 20. Champlain quickly and correctly sized him up as both pious and smart, and dispatched him that same year to live with the Hurons at Alumet Island in the Ottawa River. For those of you following along with a map app or an intimate command of eastern Canada's geography, Alumet Island is just on the Quebec side of the border with Ontario, right across from the town of Pembroke. Within a couple of years, however, Nicolet had moved a bit west to live with an Impissings, with whom he would stay for eight or nine years. This brings us to the third strand, the tribes in the region, the rough extent of their respective territories, their various relationships with New France and each other, and the vast extent of their trading networks. I'll try to describe the tribes most relevant to the story at some risk of oversimplifying. Again, Google Maps will help follow along if you're not driving or playing lawn darts or doing anything else that demands your attention while you listen to this. The settlements of New France, such as they were, stretched along the vast St. Lawrence River, which runs northeast from Lake Ontario to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Champlain had established peaceful relations with the Montagnier tribe north of the river and the Hurons, Who generally occupied the territory between the Ottawa River and the eastern shore of Lake Huron. South of the river, in today's New York State, lay the territory of the five nations of the Iroquois, known to themselves as the Haudenosaunee, or People of the Longhouse. The Iroquois had waged war on the Hurons and the Montagnier for decades before the French and Champlain came to the region. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that Champlain teamed up with the Montagnier and the Hurons to launch preemptive strikes against the Iroquois at Ticonderoga on Lake Champlain in 1609 and at Onondaga, roughly the location of today's Syracuse, in 1615. While the battles had different tactical outcomes, they both resulted in the deterrence of Iroquois attacks on Champlain's Indian allies for the better part of 20 years. You may also recall that after the 1615 campaign, Champlain spent the winter with the Hurons recovering from arrow wounds sustained during the siege of Onondaga. He and the Hurons knew each other well. During that time, Champlain also got to know the Nipissings, who lived along the upper reaches of the Ottawa River in the vicinity of Lake Nipissing, northeast Lake Huron and in the direction of Hudson Bay. The Nipissings, in turn, traded with the Ottawa tribe, who lived on the islands in northern Lake Huron, curiously a long way from today's capital city of Ottawa. Champlain also learned on that expedition that Lake Huron was fresh water. However, he heard stories of salty water far to the west, raising the possibility that there might be waters connected to the Pacific, perhaps across some manageable portage. The Hurons were a large tribe sitting on fertile agricultural land. They generated substantial crop surpluses and from their position on the eastern side of the Great Lakes functioned as middlemen in the region's long-distance trade. They traveled down the St. Lawrence once a year in the summer to trade with the French and the tribes along the river, and brought goods, especially pelts, but also copper and mica from far to the west. The Hurons would trade with the Nipissings, who would turn to the Ottawas, who would canoe west into the Great Lakes and trade with the tribes in the upper Midwest. They also would have traded to the southwest, perhaps with the Illinois Confederacy, who at that time lived in western Michigan, think Kalamazoo, and northern Indiana. This was how, for example, Hurons came to have buffalo hides, which were not found on the hoof in eastern Ontario. Champlain and the French learned a lot about these trading networks long before they participated in them directly. Having himself spent the winter of 1615 and 16 with the Hurons, Champlain no doubt had plenty of opportunity to hear about tribes to the west. In 1616, he would draw a rather beautiful, if profoundly inaccurate, early map of the Great Lakes, and for the first time in any European document, labeled the location of a tribe called the Puan's, P-U-A-N-S, pronounced something like poin in French. I'm going to speak it sort of an English way, hope it doesn't offend anyone's tender sensibilities. The Puan's, we now know, lived in today's Door County, Wisconsin, just northeast of Green Bay, so we therefore also know that by 1616, four years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth and less than a decade after the settling of Jamestown, Champlain had heard of tribes as far west as Packer Country, all by Indian trading lore. I happen to think that's actually quite cool. Anyway, the interesting thing is that the word Poin means stinky in French, so the name is their translation of an algonquin description of the tribe in question. The point wasn't that the people themselves were stinky, by the way. They certainly would have been by our daily shower standards of today, but would not have been compared to, say, 17th century Frenchmen on the frontier in North America. The story was that they lived upon stinky waters. Perhaps that meant brackish, and perhaps that implied a connection to the Western Ocean. Meanwhile, Etienne Brule and other interpreters were no doubt hearing similar stories— in his nine years with the Nipissing, during which he became fluent in their language, Jean Nicolet would probably learn more than any of them, except Brulé, who was more widely traveled for most of that period. Of course, almost twenty years would elapse between Champlain learning about the Plains at Green Bay and Jean Nicolet's misunderstood mission to establish relations with them. There are a lot of ins and outs and what-have-yous, but for our purposes, there were five important catalysts for Nicolet's trip. First, France's king, Louis XIII, was more interested in the possibility of profit from New France and a lot less interested in exploration than his predecessor. So around 1620, he ordered Champlain to cease exploration and instead devote himself to the prudent administration of New France. That meant that to the extent that Champlain wanted to explore or merely build out New France's trading network, he relied ever more on his interpreters rather than doing it himself. Second, in light of that, in 1621, Champlain sent Etienne brule to explore the northern coast of Lake Huron. The best evidence suggests that he made it all the way to the rapids of Sault Ste. Marie, which connect Lake Huron and St. Mary's River to Lake Superior. There's some argument over whether Brulé made it all the way through to gaze upon Superior. He did, however, establish more or less once and for all that the big lakes to the west of Huron were also fresh water. And of course, he became the first European to see Michigan. Champlain, now grounded in Quebec by his king, stopped writing about the search for a Northwest Passage. Third, the English and the French went to war, and English privateers captured Quebec in 1628 and Champlain headed back to France. Unfortunately for the privateers, they grabbed Quebec after England and France had ended their war by a treaty. So England had to surrender Quebec back to the French. They dilly-dallied a bit, so it was 1633 before Champlain was back in New France and again in charge. It had been much weakened. The colony was in sad shape after years of English occupation. Fourth, the five nations were again posing the gravest threat to New France and her Indian allies, especially the Hurons. We know very little of Champlain's thinking between his return to New France in 1633 and his death at the end of 1635, because only two of his letters and one short manuscript survive from that period. They all, however, were preoccupied with the Iroquois threat, appealing for both soldiers and weapons that never came. The Iroquois were increasingly threatening after having been deterred for more than 20 years because the Dutch, trading with them at Fort Orange near Albany, were providing them with metal arrowheads and eventually firearms. The newly confident Haudenosaunee attacked the French at Trois-Rivières along the St. Lawrence on June 2, 1633 and killed at least two of them. In the spring of 1634, 1,500 Senecas invaded the territory of the Hurons, killing 200 and capturing another 100. The security of New France was now in jeopardy from indigenous peoples to a degree that it had not been in all the previous quarter century. Fifth, the Hurons and the Napissings were also under pressure from tribes in the west, now to Professor Jung's account of the shifting geopolitics of the region in the early 1630s, with a few inserted clarifications of mine. Quote: While the Iroquois threat to New France and its Indian allies is well documented, far less is known about the Puans and their allies the Menomines. Nevertheless, The meager documentary sources are enough to demonstrate the tribes along Lake Huron's eastern shore were engaged in war with the Puans at least as early as 1615, although the fighting appears to have been sporadic, as the Ottawa's also traded with them during the 1620s. We also know that the Puans controlled access to Green Bay, as well as the entire region to the west that they accessed via the Fox and Wisconsin rivers. The extant sources describe the Puans as a powerful, populous tribe that ate the flesh of their defeated enemies. This was not merely a tall tale employed by the Puans to instill fear in their enemies, although it certainly accomplished this goal. Various sources confirm the practice of ritualized cannibalization, including later Ho Chunk, that would be a descendant tribe of the Puans oral traditions, as well as those of the Iowa Indians with whom they shared a common ancestry. The Puans massacre of an Ottawa party most likely occurred in the early 1630s, possibly 1633. The alliance the Ottawas and other tribes in the Lake Huron region had with the French may have prompted the Puans to commit this massacre. Nicholas Parrott a late 17th century French traveler through the region who wrote down oral history, wrote, "'The Utuaks, the Ottawa's, sent them envoys "'whom the Pwands had the cruelty to eat. "'This crime incensed all the nations "'who formed a union with the Ottawa's "'on account of the protection accorded to them by the latter "'under the auspices of the French "'from whom they received weapons and all sorts of merchandise.' According to an early Jesuit writer, this union of French-allied forces that formed against the Puans included the Hurons. Back to me. In other words, Champlain and New France had two reasons now to concern themselves with these ancestors of future Packers fans. They were in alliance with the tribes that the Puans were attacking— and that carried with it the obligation to help in their defense. In addition, the French needed those tribes to mount a defense against the Iroquois to the south. Champlain, who no longer held out hope for an easily accessible passage to the Pacific, sent Jean Nicolet to broker peace with the Poins because he had to relieve the pressure on the Ottawas, the Nipissings, and the Hurons, not because he was hoping to find Chinese people. That invites the question... What's the deal with Nicolet's Chinese robe? Never fear, we shall come back to that. The precise route of Nicolet's voyage by a canoe to Green Bay, the timing of it, and many other details are much debated in the Nicolet historiography. We know he kept a journal of the trip, but it would be lost some years after his return, perhaps in the accident that took his life in 1642. We obviously cannot know for sure what he wrote, but the loss of that journal almost certainly deprives us of some fascinating early observations of the tribes in the region. All we have are accounts written by a couple of French friars totaling only about eight pages, based on their conversations with Nicolet after the fact. Professor Young parses all of the various possibilities in about 40 pages of his book, which strikes me as very well reasoned. Rather than torture you with all the nuance, I'll describe Nicolet's journey using Professor Young's most probable case, if you will. In the summer of 1634, having received orders, almost certainly from Champlain, to find the pawns and talk them out of war, Nicolet arrived in Huronia, the territory of the Hurons, at some point in the last two weeks of August. He traveled with large canoes that contained a fair amount of baggage, trade goods and food and weapons and such. He had six or seven Indians to guide and paddle the canoes. Young suggests they were probably Ottawa's, who were the most knowledgeable of the Great Lakes and who had been absorbing the brunt of the Puan's aggression. There may also have been a Huron or two along. Nicolay and his crew paddled along the northern shore of Lake Huron and then toward the discharge of the rapids at Sault Ste. Marie. Some have argued that they traveled up the rapids to Whitefish Bay at the eastern end of Superior, but Young parses the translations, the various secondhand accounts, and argues that they instead cut to the south, passed by the discharge from the Sioux, and traversed the Straits of Mackinac. Now, the accounts don't mention that he crossed into a new lake, known today as Lake Michigan, but the straits five miles wide at that point. From the vantage of a canoe, it would not seem to be another lake, just a narrows at the western edge of Lake Huron, leading to more Lake Huron. From Mackinac, the canoes made their way along the southern shore of Michigan's upper peninsula. Da-u-p, if one has spent some time in the upper Midwest. They entered... Green Bay, which would have appeared to be a new lake, when they turned the corner at Fairport, Michigan. Being in canoes on a great lake, it's reasonable to assume that Nicolay and his guides would have stayed close to the shore all along the way. For starters, they needed to go ashore at night to build a fire and sleep and whatnot. Professor Young estimates that at this point, they would have traveled more than 400 miles. That sounds like a lot but young Indian men were incredibly fit and were known to make more than 30 miles a day on a regular basis. Even if they were moving less quickly, if they indeed left Huronia in late August, they would have reached the northern shore of Green Bay by the third week of September, 1634. The weather was still nice, even if the days were now shorter and the nights were starting to get crisp at some point, now well into football season, the men went ashore across Green Bay from the Puans on the Door Peninsula, but smack in the territory of their allies, the Menominees. Now let's go back to Professor Young's account, quote, What did Nicolay and his guides do after their arrival at the north end of Green Bay? According to Vimont, he's one of the friars who wrote the short narratives of the journey, They fastened two sticks in the earth and hung gifts thereon so as to relieve these tribes from the notion of mistaking them for enemies to be massacred. What Vimont described was a calumet ceremony, an important act of diplomacy among tribes in the Great Lakes that signaled Nicolet's peaceful intent. The gifts would have included tobacco and a ceremonial pipe or calumet, the smoking of which indicated the parties involved sealed a treaty of peace between them. Beaumont went on to say, when he was two days' journey from that nation, he sent one of those savages to bear tidings of the peace, which word was especially well received when the Menomonees heard that it was a European who carried the message. From this, we can easily discern Nicolay kept the bulk of his party at the north end of Green Bay and sent one man to take his message to the Puans allies, the Menominees. Why? Very simply, he was taking no chances. If his messenger had been killed, the remainder of his party would have had to make a hasty retreat back to Heronia. Vimont also made it very clear that after the messenger came back, Nicolet and his Indian guys left their canoes at the north end of Green Bay and proceeded on foot. The Menominees dispatched several young men. They meet him, they escort him, and carry all his baggage. Thus, Nicolet and his party left their canoes at the original point of arrival as a security measure, and Nicolet may have left a few of the Indians who accompanied him there as well. Back to me. There's also considerable debate over where Nicolay and his guides went after the Menominee men arrived. And there are historical markers all over the area that reflect the claims of various historians and local history boosters. Young again parses the various clues and argues that they went to the Grand Village of the Menominees, which sat at today's Marinette, astride the border between the UP and the state of Wisconsin. There the Menomines had gathered a grand council, numbering three to five thousand Indians from all over the region, surely including the Poins. According to Vimont, on arrival Nicolet donned a grand robe of China damask, all strewn with flowers and birds of many colors. It is this account taken at face value by historians over many generations that conjured up the idea that Nicolet wore a Chinese outfit to impress people who might have met the Chinese. And so it has been depicted, including on that United States commemorative stamp. Back to Young, who gets to the bottom of it, quote, China damask did not denote a style of robe. Instead, it was a kind of silk known as Damas de la Chine in French. It was originally made in China and introduced to Europe by way of Damascus. Due to the great demand for this fabric, Europeans by the 1100s began producing large quantities of silk, including Damas de la Chine, and the French city of Lyon became a major manufacturing center by the mid-1400s. One source describes Damat de as a rich silk fabric with woven floral designs made in China and introduced into Europe through Damascus. Silk weavers in France ornately embroidered their fabrics. One historian writes, The tool of the highly skilled workmen traced the most varied designs, such as flowers, small crosses, foliage, and nosegays, on satin and silk. Both descriptions sound much like Nicolet's garment, which was strewn with flowers and birds of many colors. Nicolet's robe was undoubtedly crafted from damas de la chine produced in Europe. What did Europeans and Frenchmen make with the silk, specifically damas de la chine in Nicolet's time? The English translation of Vimont's narrative describes Nicolet's garment as a robe, but a better word would be cape. In the early 17th century, European men of the nobility and bourgeoisie who wanted to dress in high fashion regularly wore capes as outerwear for what one historian calls full dress court occasions. This perfectly correlates with the atmosphere and purpose of Nicolet's mission to the Poins, as well as his position. He served the commander of New France as an envoy to a powerful Indian nation. Back to me. So Jean Nicolet, in his French cape made of European silk, appeared at a gathering of thousands of Indians on the north shore of Green Bay at roughly the Michigan-Wisconsin border, just as the leaves were beginning to turn in late September 1634. He then pulled out his two pistols and fired them into the air. According to Vimont's derivative account, the women and children fled the man who carried thunder in his hands. There's no evidence that he asked the assembled crowd, are you not entertained? But that was, in fact, his objective. You might think that this ended badly, but it didn't. The Menominees and the Poins certainly had heard of Europeans from their trading networks, and Nicolet had lived up to the gossip. They knew he was a bona fide foreigner, a person with seemingly magical technology who had never been known in their land. So they threw him a huge feast at which they served, presumably among other things, the meat of more than a hundred beavers. Nicolet joined them in a calumet ceremony, presumably locking down peace between the Puans and their allies and the French and theirs. Nicolet had brought trade goods, at least some of which must have been familiar to Wisconsin Indians even then. And then Nicolet and his guides went back to Huronia. There are, in fact, any number of speculative theories that Nicolet traveled the region before going back to the territory of the Hurons. We know that in conversations during the big confab in the Grand Village of the Menominees, he'd learned the names and locations of other tribes in the upper Midwest, from the mitten of Michigan to the Dakotas. Some argue with no evidence whatsoever that the delegation paddled some ways up the Fox River and the network of streams and lakes southwest of Green Bay. Professor Young argues persuasively that this was unlikely. Winter was coming fast, and neither Nicolay, who had accomplished his mission, nor his guides would have wanted to spend it in Wisconsin. In all likelihood, Nicolet did spend that winter with the Hurons and probably would have returned to the St. Lawrence with Huron traders in the summer of 1635. He probably would see Champlain again, but later that summer, the father of New France would suffer a debilitating stroke. He would die on Christmas Day, 1635. Champlain, who had written so much, never wrote of what he learned from Nicolet. Jean Nicolet would go on to serve New France for the rest of his life. He would die in October 1642 when a storm capsized the shallop he was in, just off Quebec. The one survivor of the disaster reported that Nicolet's last words were, Sir, save yourself. You can swim. I cannot. As for me, I depart to God. I commend to you my wife and my daughter. Jean Nicolet, who had traveled the better part of a 1,000 miles by canoe across the Great Lakes and back in the summer of 1634, died from drowning in the St. Lawrence River because he couldn't swim. Weird as that may sound to us, even many, if not most, European sailors of the day couldn't swim. Apart from the fact of the discovery of Wisconsin... It's hard to detect the long-term impact of Jean Nicolet's diplomatic mission to Green Bay. The Puans broke the peace after a couple of years. The Iroquois all but destroyed the Hurons, and New France spent 20 years under pressure from the Five Nations. Even the Puans would fade from history. Not long after the events of 1634, the Illinois Confederacy would attack and mostly destroy the Puans in a war properly understood as the first Bears-Packers game. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.